you will turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, verse 11. I'll have you stand in just a moment as you find that. Uh, But Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 11. Uh, As you find that, if you'll stand uh, for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading through verse uh, 27 of our text this morning. Uh, Would you hear then uh, God's word as it's read to you? As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus, and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him. And sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. And then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief. I was afraid of you, because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit, and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine... Who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. We, as people, we live out of our metaphors. Whether we realize it or not, a lot of our language is very metaphorical. And a lot of how we see the world and see ourselves and see our society, even see the church... Uh, We live out of our metaphors. Uh, A small example would be uh, a lot of our modern metaphors for for work, for labor, um, are very industrial metaphors. We talk about productivity. Uh, We we talk about producing and and, and getting a a good volume out. And uh, we think of a good week as a week when we've checked off enough boxes, not realizing perhaps that um, a few hundred years ago, that wouldn't have been the metaphorical framework that we think of work. Uh, but with the Industrial Revolution and, and um, uh, uh, you know, working down the line, uh, we have this metaphor that's driving us. So that in a week, uh, perhaps it was actually a good week, we, we met with just the right people and had these great connections um, that, that will have lasting impact, and yet maybe only three things were checked off the box. And so we feel like a failure when really we're not. We live out of our metaphors. What about the church? And especially when we think of the church 
in the world and our relationship to it and what's our task. Uh, there's a metaphor that's, that's, that's out there that's affected us whether we like it or not. Um, it's the metaphor of a sinking ship. Uh, maybe this sounds familiar to you. You know, the, the world is, is fallen. That's biblical. Um, uh, many things are getting worse and worse. Uh, we long for the day when Christ comes back. And so if, if the metaphor is that we're on a sinking ship, then why would we paint the floorboards of a sinking ship? You know, why would we care about the ship itself or any parts of it? You know, the, the only thing that matters is converting someone before that ship goes down. You can see how we live out of our metaphors. Or is the church a stronghold? Uh, is the church sort of a, a last safe place? And we need to run into the center of it. You know, batten up the hatches, uh, you know, board up the windows, get the children in the center of the building, and let's just wait it out and see how long we can last. We live out of our metaphors. I think that's why Jesus tells so many parables. I, he wants to capture the imagination of his people, and he wants to capture the imagination of you this morning. He wants to give you a different metaphor, a different framework for thinking about the church and our task in this world and what we are called to do. And, and my prayer is that by looking at this text, you would be freed for gospel work, for kingdom work. The point this morning is to invest in the coming kingdom, uh, to invest in the coming kingdom, to build, to do business, to take what he's given you and multiply it, to get creative, uh, to see yourself, your life, your family, your church as really actually part of his kingdom plan for this world. That's what Jesus wants to convince you of this morning. And to do that, our three points will match up with three uh, motivations for investing. Uh, Jesus often does this. He, he has a point to make in, in his message, and he wants to convince you. He wants to cut right to the heart and convince you to do it. And so we're going to look at three motivations for investing in the kingdom. Number one, the king's delay. Number two, the king's return. And number three, the king's approval. We'll look at each of these in turn. Number one, the king's delay. The king's delay. It's interesting. We come to this point in the Gospel of Luke, and, and as you're probably familiar now, we've been heading toward Jerusalem, and, and, and it's called Luke's travel narrative, and we really are here at the climax of the travel narrative. Uh, if, you, if you just look with your eye over to verse 28, you probably have a title in your Bible that says the triumphal entry, uh, which we've looked at before in the past together on a Palm Sunday. Uh, Jesus is literally about to enter Jerusalem. Uh, he's at the climax of this. And so he tells this parable. And I love verse 11 uh, because verse 11 is like a key that unlocks this parable. And Jesus does this sometimes. The gospel writers do this sometimes. And it's a real gift when they say, hey, by the way, here's what this parable is about. <laughs> here's what it means. He, and it says, as they heard these things, as he was ministering to Zacchaeus in Jericho, uh, he proceeded to tell a parable. Why? Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Immediately. Uh, they were near to Jerusalem. There's an urgency. Uh, Jesus can see the cross just over the hill. He knows where he's heading. And so he tells this parable. But also, he knows their hearts. He knows their expectation. He knows that soon uh, palm branches are going to be uh, laid down and hosannas are going to be lifted up. And the people still, though, even as they see the kingly aspect of Christ, 
their expectation is not right. They think he's going to march into Jerusalem. Uh, they think he's going to march to Rome and challenge Caesar himself, drive out the Romans once and for all, and reestablish Israel as a kingdom on earth. That's their expectation. And Jesus knows what he's about to do in, in one sense is much humbler than that, and in one sense is much more cosmically, ultimately incredible, that he's going to die on the cross for the sins of his people, that he'll rise again, he'll seat himself at the right hand of the Father and rule as king of this world until he'll one day come again. That's what Jesus is about to do. And so he wants his people to understand what he's about to do. And so he tells a story. I got to sit in on a Sunday school this morning with um, some of the younger kids. And it's amazing that when you, when you sit down and say it's story time, the ears perk up and eyes look up. Uh, when you say something like, uh, a nobleman went into a far country to perceive for himself a kingdom and then return. How many of our stories start that way? You know, there, there once was a kingdom, and in it was a noble prince, and, and this was his mission, or this was the problem. I think Jesus wants to capture our imaginations, so he speaks of a nobleman. Uh, he speaks of a mission to go and to receive for himself a kingdom. And this nobleman who's going to go receive a kingdom, and by the way, this doesn't mean territory necessarily. He's not going to receive territory and somehow bring the territory back. He's, he's going to receive kingship. He's going to receive the authority to rule. He has some authority, as we see, but he's going to come back with full authority that is due to him. But before he goes, he gathers to himself his servants. We see he's a man of authority. And he gives them ten Minus and says, engage in business until I come back. So he's going off on a mission. While I'm gone, uh, let me give you this money. It would have been about uh, three months' wages. Uh, so nothing to write home about in one sense, but also not nothing. It's you know, three months' wages. They're each given the same amount. And he says, get busy. Get to work. Invest. I'm giving you something. When I come back, I, I, I want to see what I gave you be more. Uh, you know, if... If you're a business owner or, or, or you have any familiarity, I mean, this, is a, this isn't an unfair request. Uh, when someone makes an investment, they're saying, I want to invest in this and I want to see it multiply. And that's what Jesus, uh, well, ultimately Jesus, but here the nobleman does for these servants. And then he goes away. In other words, I'm not coming back tomorrow. There's going to be some delay from your perspective. While I'm gone, engage in business. It's interesting, as we think about our role as the church, Christ has come, he has died. Anyone who puts their faith in Jesus is part of the church. He rose again, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. We long for the day when he'll come back in power, when those expectations of the Jews at the time will seem small compared to him coming back and every knee bowing down and every tongue confessing that he is Lord. We long for that day. And yet, here we are. Uh, we're in this in-between time. Christ came. Christ will come again. We don't know the day or the hour. There's an urgency that he could come at any moment. And yet, while he delays, from our perspective, not from his perspective, we're to engage in business. We're to invest. We're to take the things he's given us and be busy with the gospel. Be busy with kingdom work. His delay means our diligence. And so this is a motivation and the early church had to learn this. I mean, look at Acts 1, and the apostles 
see Jesus ascend into the clouds. And as we've talked about before, then they just sort of stare up at the clouds, thinking like, okay, he said we don't know the day or the hour, so maybe it's like five minutes. Okay, no, no, maybe it's ten minutes. You know, he's really making us wait. <laughs> and then he's going to come back and drive out the, Roman, uh, the Romans. But an angel comes down and, and wakes them up and says, men of Galilee, what are you doing? <laughs> he gave you work to do. Go, do it. <laughs> uh, go, bring the gospel to the nations. And they do. They pray, and the Spirit falls upon them. And if you compare Acts 1 to the rest of the book of Acts... Uh, they preach and they teach and they serve and they heal and they drive out demons. And the word, the ministry of the word grows and grows and grows and thousands are added to their number. They realized that from their perspective, there was a delay. Christ wasn't coming back that moment. And that meant dil- diligent work. And so it means for us, as long as he delays, which is his grace, his delay actually meant your salvation that he didn't come back a hundred years ago. That meant your salvation. Uh, this is the age of grace, and it's the age for us to build and to work. So the king's delay becomes a motive for our investment. Number two, the king's return is our second motive. The king's uh, return. You see in verse 14, actually we'll turn there in just a moment. Uh, so the king is going away, but he's also going to return. So his delay is a motivation, but also his return. Uh, I was... I've been reading a, a, a science fiction novel, and, and in it, it's you know, sort of typical end, end of the world. The sun is dying. Scientists are trying to figure out what's going on. And a science teacher speaks to his students, and they're asking all these questions about sort of the physics of it. And, and they're very anxious asking these questions until a student asks the question, how long is this going to take, this process of the sun dying and life on earth being wiped out? And he says, 30 years. <sighs> Their shoulders slump down and, and smiles come back to their face because to them, 30 years is a bajillion years. <laughs> it's forever. <laughs> I don't even have to worry about it, right? So his delay should be a motivation, but sometimes his delay for us uh, becomes a demotivation. Well, you know, he's coming back, but not tomorrow. So, But that's not what we see here. We see an urgency, And here, first, sort of negatively, uh, he's coming back in a way that is a warning to those who would reject his rule. We see first the rebellious citizens in verse 14. And like a good uh, story, it's almost this aside. You know, he tells the servants to engage in business, and then that continues in verse 15. But right in verse 14, uh, there's an ominous note, but his citizens hated him. And sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And then Jesus kind of just lets that lie for the rest of the story. We look at the servants, which we'll look at in a minute. But then in verse 27, uh, you notice the story ends on a very ominous note. But at, when he returns, the king says, as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is a warning passage. The, the Bible is full of these warning passages. It's interesting. There's likely a historical um, happening that was in Jesus' mind and certainly in his hearer's mind at the time. We don't know for sure, but the details are very similar. Uh, one author puts it this way. Um, when Herod the Great died in 4 BC, which was around the time Jesus was born, it was obvious to almost everyone that his son Archelaus would take the throne in Judea. However, there was only one man in the entire world who had the power and authority to crown Archelaus king. 
and that was the emperor Caesar in Rome. Although Archelaus began to rule immediately upon the death of his father, his royal title could be ratified only by Caesar Augustus himself. And so Archelaus made the long journey to Rome, a faraway place where he expected to be crowned as king at the temple of Apollo. Unfortunately for Archelaus, there was an active opposition to his monarchy. And when he arrived in Rome, he discovered that some of his own family members were rival claimants to the throne. Even worse, a delegation of 50 Jewish leaders came from Jerusalem seeking an audience with Caesar and claiming that Archelaus was unfit to govern. During Passover, there had been a disturbance at the temple, and soldiers of Archelaus had rashly slaughtered some 3,000 worshipers. The delegation from Jerusalem, backed by thousands of Jews who were then living in Rome, petitioned Caesar to liberate them from the authority of Archelaus. The whole business took much longer than anyone expected, but eventually Caesar decided to give Archelaus the opportunity to prove that he was worthy to be the king. Not surprisingly, when Archelaus returned to Judea, he executed swift punishment against the men who had rebelled against his rule. He went away a contender, but he returned as king ready to exercise his royal authority. You know, the details are striking here, and it seems likely that uh, Jesus' hearers would have had this instance in mind. And as Jesus does many times, he uses a, a wicked king, a wicked ruler as an example uh, to, to bring to the imagination of the people the very real life and death reality that one day he would return as king And though he came first as a humble king, dying a death on a cross, having the words the king of the Jews mockingly put above him, when he returns the next time, it will not be a humble appearance. Uh, It will be an appearance with fire, with sword, where his enemies are dealt with once and for all. And so, friend, if you've come today and Jesus to you is an object of your mockery, or even better, if Perhaps he's an object of some respect. You know, some of his teachings are compelling. But if, if like these citizens, you don't want him to rule over you, uh, let me warn you in the name of Christ to bow a knee to this king, Jesus, uh, to find forgiveness in him. Uh, so that when he returns, it would be a joyful thing, that you would rejoice in his coming, uh, that you would enter into his kingdom and his rest. Don't be like the rebellious citizens we see in this story. Be, be also not like the wicked servant. We see the, uh, we see the faithful servants, which we'll talk about more in a moment, who, who they multiply what, what the king gave them to do. They invest it. They, uh, they build. They, uh, the, the capital increases. Uh, but this other servant sort of sheepishly unfolds his handkerchief and hands it back and, and says, here, I kept this for you I, because I was afraid of you. Because we live out of our metaphors. His metaphor was that this was a harsh, unfair person that he didn't really love, that he wouldn't bow to. He was afraid of him. And so he says, look, I just sort of in fear kept this and didn't do anything else with it. It's not that he went off and squandered it and spent it on sinful things. At least it doesn't talk about that. But he was unfaithful and called by this king a wicked servant, a wicked servant, and his mina is taken and and given to those who had increased. Everyone's shocked by this, but he says, look, this makes sense. Those who have been faithful and little, they're going to gain even more, but not this wicked servant. 
And so I believe this wicked servant finds himself in verse 27 as one of the enemies defeated by this king when he returns. His imminent return means our urgency. It means our urgency. His, his delay doesn't mean we would grow slothful. His return keeps us awake and seeking to serve him. The king's delay and the king's return are motivations then for us to build, to invest. And number three, the king's approval. The king's approval. We see in verses 15 through 19 then the faithful servants. They love their master. They're, They're reverent of him, but they're not afraid of him. And so they do exactly what he asked them to do. They do business. Um... They literally later, they put their money on the table, uh, which uh, would have been a metaphor for investing it in a bank as we think of it. Uh, They took everything that was given to them and they uh, prayerfully, we would say, saw it increase. And notice their humility. They say, your mina has gained 10 minas more. Uh, Your investment has gained. Not, look at me, I, I really did something that someone else couldn't do. No, you gave and it increased. And and look at Jesus' words, uh, well, the nobleman's words, which become Jesus' words to us. A well done, good servant. Well done, good servant. Of all these motivations, the delay, the return, for the believer, it's, it's the king's approval that we seek. It's the king's approval that leads us to the most zealous work for the kingdom. First, because we know we already have his approval in Jesus Christ. We're not working and striving and doing to earn anything. We already belong to him. But then thinking to that day, whether he gives us 10 years or 20 years or 100 years, when we see him face to face, when he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. And we'll say, we were just unworthy servants, just doing what you called us to do by the power that you provided. And he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. We lost two faithful servants uh, this week, as perhaps you're aware. Uh, Tim Keller uh, passed away this week, a a PCA pastor. Uh, Perhaps many of you have benefited from some of his works. Uh, I know some of you have been to his church, Redeemer, in New York. Uh, Keller had a a real gifting for engaging uh, the world in a way uh, that allowed the gospel to get right in front of people in a way that perhaps they hadn't seen it as clearly. He was diagnosed with cancer three years ago, and his children were sort of posting uh, as he came home on hospice this week. Um, and they said, we take comfort in some of his last words. Keller says, just this week, he said, there is no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. <laughs> and he spent precious moments with his wife uh, just before the end. And, and surely he saw the face of his Savior who said, well done good and faithful servant. And we also lost, uh, perhaps even closer to home for some, Harry Reeder was another prominent pastor who died suddenly this week. He was senior pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, uh, seen as sort of a, a founding father of the PCA, a uh, similar denomination to our own. He uh, you know, wrote the book, From Members to a Flame. I know Pastor Brian uh, himself went to many conferences of Harry Reeder and learned much from him. Uh, Kevin DeYoung writes this about Harry Reader. The PCA will celebrate its 50th anniversary next month as commissioners from all over the country gather at General Assembly. I can hardly believe we won't see Harry there. 
as well as anyone I've known, he embodied the motto of the PCA, which is faithful to the scriptures, true to the reformed faith, obedient to the great commission. That was Harry, all of him and all of it. He loved to teach the faith. He loved to defend the faith. He loved to share his faith. I'm sure I wasn't the only person to see Harry witness to the restaurant server or ask perfect strangers how he could pray for them. Above all, Harry's legacy is the gospel he preached so effectively and shared so frequently. For Harry, all is glory and gladness now and forever. Will that be your legacy? The gospel, the kingdom. Will there be fruit sown in your life by the grace of God? Uh, that one day you, you will love to look back over it with your Savior, with delight as you think about, oh, you were working there, and oh, you used me there. Wait, you were using my suffering? When I was suffering for three years, you were using that? Don't, don't you want that to be your legacy? And isn't that the greatest motivation as we think of our Savior one day saying, well done, good and faithful servant? Right? We live out of our metaphors. He's, he's not a harsh school teacher with a clipboard waiting on the other side of glory to just let you know what you missed. He's with you now to the end of the age. He's working in you now. Uh, his grace, his strength, and one day he'll celebrate with you all the things that he's worked and done in you. This frees us. There's a freedom in the gospel to go and to do and to act for his glory. Christians, this is a time to build. This is a time to build. I, I know you're looking at your news feeds every week and the message over and over again, it's a time to hide. This is a time to batten down the hatches and just weather it. That's the best we could do. No, this is a good time to be a Christian. This is a good time to be a Christian. Uh, this is a good time to have Jesus as your king. This is a time to build. Uh, he's delaying by his grace. We have time now to build, to invest, to do business, to increase, to labor, to love, to serve, to pray, to weep with those who weep, uh, to, to get creative and think about, God, how will you use me? How will you use my family? Uh, to make plans, to set goals, to use your gifts, to love his word to love your neighbor, to fight your sin, to make friends that aren't Christians, to make friends in deep relationships that you need to survive, to share the gospel, to serve your church, to build up your business if you're a business leader, to care for your employees in such a way that it's so obvious to them who your master is, to love your kids, to teach your kids, to be present with your kids. And young people, this is a time to take up the torch. It's a time for you to take up the torch. It doesn't matter how young you are right now. Your king wants to use you for his kingdom. Don't believe us adults. Don't believe all the fretting we do when we're scrolling through our news feeds and we're just decrying how messed up it is and what's going to happen and we feel so sorry for you. Don't listen to that. Turn to your king who wants to use you for his kingdom, to invest and build and bring life. Don't take up our fretting. Take up the torch. All of us use every moment, every conversation, every challenge, every suffering, every dying as a kingdom opportunity. 
and pray for that. God, would you use today, would you use this week, would you give me kingdom opportunities and eyes to see them so that I will take them by your grace. Invest in the coming kingdom because one day by his grace, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. That in your word we see our precious king, King Jesus. That he wakes us up, he warns us, he moves us back on the path. And he encourages us, he strengthens us by the word and spirit to be your people for your purposes, to see your kingdom grow and grow. We pray that that would be evident here in this church and in this valley and and to the ends of the earth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.